Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta. And today we have with us a, a very special guest. It's Max Borders, who is the author of The Social Singularity, How Decentralization Will Allow Us to Transcend Politics, Create Global Prosperity, and Avoid the Robot Apocalypse, which is... Uh, <laughs> quite a uh, quite as an expansive subject and and he he covers it beautifully in in the book I um, actually had uh, first met max uh, virtually uh, through a community of uh, like-minded people on online and uh, reached out and and um, I'm thrilled max that you're able to join us I am so happy to be here thank you for having me terrific well first of all I just to provide a bit of context, could you share share a little bit about your background and and you know some of the some of the factors that have shaped your thinking? Because uh, we'll get into it a little bit later, but I, I think your your book really takes a uh, a unique and um, you know very broad historical view of a lot of the the forces that are coming together to you know to to drive this 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 decentralization trend. Sure. And, you know, it, it, it's actually never occurred to me until this moment that, uh, you know, a question about my background would in somehow inform, uh, you know, my thinking now. But I guess it really has. And let me put it this way. So I did my graduate work in philosophy, and philosophy is a pretty useless throwaway degree uh, by most people's rights, at least from the standpoint of the marketplace. We don't often think about hiring philosophers per se, but um, I think it, it, it has certainly done a lot to, uh, to affect the way I think about things. And when you marry that with, um, oh, on about, uh, I guess, 1999 to 2001, I did a stint uh, writing about technology for Accenture Tech Labs. I was uh, covering emerging technologies during the first tech bubble, and what a great time. I don't know if many of your listeners remember this time, but it was a really exciting time for technologies. I think it was the first time where, where you know, this, it was, the Internet was exploding and everything was possible. So I really, you know, I got pulled into writing about tech by a friend and got hooked on, on everything to do with technology. But marrying that with a background in political philosophy, philosophy of mind, which is what I did my graduate work in, and um, – and then, you know, having to do a job writing about emerging technologies, those things started to weave together. Those interests started to weave together in ways that I think have only now reached their fullest expression. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about that. That's great. I, it's, uh, I, it's, it's funny that uh, philosophy comes up in the, you know, in the discussion of decentralization and and uh you know blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies because it was uh it, i mean it's funny that you that you mentioned that because i i had an aha moment earlier earlier this year when i heard 
uh, Patrick Byrne, who's the CEO of Overstock, speak. And there was there had been something that had been really eluding me. Uh, it wasn't the technology, but it, I there was you know some really fundamental, uh, fundamentally important threads uh, that have to do really with. Uh, the organization of society and 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 uh, the distribution of power and, and value and well it turns out that Patrick Byrne is a, is a PhD in philosophy so I right yeah so I, I think that the uh, the value of philosophy is is certainly not uh, not to be uh, under you know underestimated and and I. Uh, I have a son who's uh, who's going into college this fall, and I, uh, on I think uh, due to my urging, he's uh, one of his classes is an intro to political philosophy. So, um, oh, I, I, fantastic! <laughs> so I, I really do think that that you know being able to think about the world is you know is 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 hugely useful in in uh, p- pulling together all these different threads. So. Um, yeah, I'd love to get us a bit of a sense of, of the, um, the 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 forces in the context um, that are coming together that, that you see have have created the really the dynamics behind uh, you know this 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 move toward decentralization and uh, you could provide a, just a bit of a background of you know what you know what led you to 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 write the book. Well, you know it's interesting because. Um, you know, you know, in, in thinking of it in philosophical terms, which, you know, not not everybody uh, is used to doing that. And, and um, so there's a, there's a couple of what we might call levels of description to this phenomenon. Uh, let's call the phenomenon the social singularity or the idea that we're moving through some sort of process. And what that process is, I'll go into in a minute. But that we're moving through some sort of process to, to a kind of moment where – the nature of uh, human relationships will fundamentally change. I think we're, we're approaching that through the kind of decentralization technologies that are only now just coming online in, in, in a much more robust way than, than 1.0, which was the Internet. So philosophically, I think what's interesting about it is, is the fact that um, at some level of description, there is a non-ideological aspect to this, or should I say – it's not, it's not ideological per se. Everything that you want to build in the decentralization space, you might call it a, a, an engineering problem. So if you have some ideological priors, for example, a lot of people are really interested in experimenting with universal basic income. I personally think that there's a lot wrong with the idea of a UBI. I don't, I think it's uh it's problematic on a number of uh, number of levels, but what's great about blockchain, distributed ledger technologies, and other kinds of uh, you know similar technologies that serve to either disintermediate people or hypermediate them, and I think there's both. Um, disin- where disinter- disintermediation is getting rid of middlemen, and hypermediation is making everyone a middleman. I mean, both of those forces are at play, and in interesting ways. But it allows us to experiment with different kinds of social structures and determine which ones are the best fit for uh, any given one of us as an individual. So when that process happens, we join communities of practice opting out of old systems and into new systems that are much more robust or track with our sense of the right and the good or actually work rather than not working 
I mean, there's all kinds of considerations for why someone would want to opt into a system and opt out of an old one that isn't working anymore. And this, this space, this decentralization space, distributed ledgers, uh, blockchain, allows us to do that in ways that we haven't been able to do before. It's also pointing the way for, for systems of law and jurisdiction in, in, the, uh, in the classical sense of it. You know, it's, it's challenging our notion that rules should be attached to territory and, and causing us to think, why is it that by virtue of uh, my birth, I have, to, I have to abide by some, you know, accident of birth, I have to abide by some uh, system of laws under some jurisdiction. And you, we look at it historically, it probably had something to do with conquest and uh, otherwise some sort of process that we, that we built on top of that. But what's interesting is now we're getting to a situation where this opt-in, opt-out makes it not so ideological unless it's in some sort of medicine. Because in the medicine, in one level of description up, it's highly competitive. And if it's highly competitive, that means if you can opt into it or opt out of it, it's more like a market. And being more like a market, some people would say is ideological. But if we think too much about it, our heads start spinning. Suffice it to say, decentralization allows for much more experimentation, many more systems uh, of, of governance that we can opt into. And in doing so, we're going to find far better uh, ideas or conceptions of the good, far more diversity in the kind of communities we can create. And also, I think the kind of businesses uh, we can architect that aren't based on old uh, legal structures that we're used to. So let's talk a bit about uh, about hierarchies, and you know, and in your book and, and some of your uh, your talks, you you've talked about the uh, the origins of, of of social hierarchies and and the um, and really the role that that having you know a centralized uh, you know organizing model you know has adds value, but. But also the way that that's uh, the the way that our our current structure um, has evolved is, has resulted in just a uh, you know a horrifically polarized uh, cultural and political environment you know in our country where uh, it's it's become I think as you describe it it's trench warfare right and whatever your you know whatever your ideology you know wherever you fall on the on the political spectrum I think all you know all of us are. Are concerned that that it's uh, there. There are many uh, incentives that really do not uh, encourage people to act their best or the most civil. And uh, again, that it, it's resulted in some uh, real gridlock, and, and people are getting very frustrated with these lack of solutions. So we'd love to get. Your, your sense of some, uh, you know, why, why are hierarchies valuable in the first place? But, but how, you know, how, uh, how is the current uh, environment and climate uh, a result of, of some of the uh, maybe unintended consequences of, of, of evolution? It's it's such a, a fascinating and complex question that you just posed, and I'm going to try to take it in three parts. And if I forget one of those parts, which is likely uh, due to my, my um, uh, you know, declining memory in my old age, 
And I'm going to try to do uh, three different components to this because I think it's a really interesting question. So the first thing is, and this is a really a theme of the book, The Social Singularity, that where it reappears over and over again in the book. Um, and that's this, this quote from this guy, Marshall McLuhan, this, this social theorist in Canada who's, who's no longer with us, but he was really an important 20th century figure in, in, um, in social theory. And this fellow has a quote, at least he's credited with saying, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. And I develop a corollary to that, which is we shape our rules and then our rules shape us. So this, this vacillating tandem between the rules we live by and the cultural, the cultural aspects of our lives, the way we behave, because anytime you have a rule set, you create a set of incentives. Uh, it's, incentives are not just like I pay someone to do something and they do it or not, or I offer to pay them to do something and they do it or not. It's also that anytime you have a rule that gets enforced through whatever means, um, or a you know, or provide a framework of movement in certain directions and not in others, you create an incentive system. And that's just the way things are. And slowly over time, these incentive systems shape culture. Now, that's not to say that culture does not also shape the systems. It most certainly does. But focusing on this, this uh, the era of causation going from the rules to the culture for a minute is, is really important. And here's why. So now moving to part two, and that's really this whole business of why politics is so awful and acrimonious. You mentioned hierarchy, and that's certainly what what uh, what politics is meant to uh, to shore up and protect. But hierarchy, you know, social hierarchies are a phenomenon, and that that'll be part three, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, but but the little detour here is in terms of American politics, and I don't want to alienate any any readers from other countries because I'm I'm quite sure they ha- they suffer from similar kinds of partisan strife to, to the United States, but. To be, to be centered on us uh, for a moment here in the U.S., we have a two-party system, and it seems that people are interested in both the spectacle on the one hand and in, in sort of arguing over who gets to sit atop the hierarchy to make the rules for everyone else. Now, in practice, even if this, we thought this were a good idea, this is not really how things exactly play out. There's tons of compromises and horse trading and, and – um, and all kinds of other influence by special interests that really does govern so much of, of what we do so that even if we thought our votes counted or mattered, which they really don't in, in some grand statistical sense, you're, you're trying to change the tide through your teardrop in the ocean, it just isn't terribly effective. Uh, but, but those, you know, those special interests, they really do hold sway and, so much of uh, what's going on, and the the areas where we might have more um, more control or influence over this sort of political process, where we install people at the top of a hierarchy, would be much more effective if if we paid attention to local politics. But we don't. The dynamic is such where it's always about what Trump said, or it's always about what Trump's uh, opposition said, or you know, what sort of shenanigans are going on at the national level when we have much, much more direct influence over things that are happening locally, but people 
really don't care. Most people don't know who their congressman is or their senate and their senator. They might, but but uh, beyond that, your your alderman or your city council person, uh, respectively, you, you may not know. So this this is a problem, but it is really, I think, a feature, an evolutionary feature of the system within within which we find ourselves. And the media create a set of incentives. The political system creates a set of incentives. And it's really designed to be rather zero-sum or sometimes negative-sum. If I can take from you and win, then um, then I get to make the rules and uh, I curry the favor of the special interests. And this sort of dance between the special interests and, and power has generally governed our, our democratic republics. For quite some time, and and democracy becomes this sort of sort of spectacular window dressing we put on this process. In my view, and that that may seem a little weird to hear from from your audience, but I think largely it's the case. And it's not to say that democracy isn't better than the past, where it was we were living under dictators or where we resolved conflicts with bullets instead of ballots. But now. We have the ability to do better, and I mean much better, and we're starting to see that in some of the technologies coming online. So to part three quickly, if my, if my brain can handle it, <laughs> and, and, then, and then we'll get to the next question, I promise, and that's this whole business of hierarchy. From the standpoint of social evolution through time, I think hierarchy has been a necessary, um, a necessary thing to have, to have evolved. We think of hierarchies as being planned, and certainly they are by the agents, uh, some of the agents who are responsible for developing them. But hierarchies really are an emergent phenomenon in evolutionary systems, particularly human evolutionary systems. And that's because in the, in the past, when we had tribal life, the, the information processing problem of human social activity was very different in hunter-gatherer times. When we, when we began to settle with agriculture, we had to protect resources and territory, and, and as we became roving bands, we encountered other roving bands that were competing to settle with agrarian lifestyles. And so protecting territory was of utmost importance. And the difference between our, uh, not just mine and thine in, in a private property sense, but ours and theirs was very much on the minds of people in a tribe. And if you wanted to act quickly, if you wanted to act quickly in unitary fashion against an enemy, i.e. those who are going to compete for resources, you had to organize yourself in a hierarchy quickly and have someone who is strategically uh, quick on their feet and strong leader. In order to do that, that's how you maintain the territory. That's how you protected your people. And that's how you moved quickly uh, relative to any sort of external circumstances such as attacks on that territory. The development of hierarchy is an absolutely natural phenomenon in time, and then over time, hierarchies start to develop and accrete special interests around them, the dynamics of you know the dance between the special interests and those in power proceeds, and we get you know around the world the sort of the contemporary, even the contemporary republics, um, the ones that don't have kings on top still have this strange set of relationships that are about auctioning power. So 
that is a lot, Ed, and I really mm-hmm. appreciate you letting me talk about it. But it's 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 these are all interconnected things, and this phase, this phase of hierarchy and partisan politics that we're seeing now is is coming to a close, and how it evolves, how it changes, it's a scary thought. My hope is that it, it is an easy transition that people rapidly adopt the technologies we're talking about and see the benefits of them quickly, just as we we stepped out of the cab and into the Uber, as it were. But it's not clear that's going to happen. There may be maybe big big wars between hierarchies and, and network relationships, um, situations that, that are ahead of us, and, and it's just hard to predict. Yeah, no doubt. Well, the reason I asked about politics and and on a you know on a on a podcast series where we've been focused a lot on on uh, connected industry and and advanced technologies, it it might seem a little bit uh, I guess out of left field. But there was a reason that I that I asked that because uh, in many respects, uh, you know, politics is is just a reflection of of a different type of or a much larger evolution of culture and. I I had a fascinating conversation with David White, who is a cognitive anthropologist, uh, several episodes ago. And, and uh, David, who was actually an old old buddy of mine from my jazz musician days, so this is sort of funny how we all end up in, in different places. But um, da- you know, David had talked about the difficulty that organizations have dealing with digital transformation. So, in uh, you know, in in larger businesses or in uh, economies that are shaped by you know by businesses that are adopting technology and and uh, you know having to uh, having to you know, really adapt their both their cultures their business models and, and also uh, even you know even fundamental processes about what people do you do have the same phenomenon of incentives that evolve that that shape people's behavior and they get fixed into these patterns and then it becomes very difficult to uh, really to shift uh, patterns of behavior or, or re, you know re characterize roles and I think there anyway there's a lot of really relevant lessons to be learned from looking at uh, you know historical political structures and the uh, you know, hierarchies and then thinking about the uh, the depth of transition that's involved with what we call digital transformation, right? Because businesses are thinking about themselves. And we're really on the cusp of, of some pretty profound changes, and um, which was a very long and roundabout way of, of asking you, uh, you know, really my next question was, you know, what what do you see as the, as the, the catalyst, uh, you know, for, you know, for this broad interest in, you know, decentralized technologies? I think, you know, what what had changed in 2008, and you know, what was people have been thinking about you know, different modes of organization? But I'd love to get your sense of of how you know, how this new wave of thought has has really uh, just just gathered enormous momentum. Well, I, I there are a lot of there are a lot of factors I think that that lead up to this, and and. And as a, a sort of a prelude to answering the question, I want to go to very quickly to um, your friend David's observation or both of your observations that people tend to get stuck in systems. You know, there are uh, network effects in systems that make it very difficult to, to 
to exit, and we have to look at network effects. But it all can be boiled down to, to two T costs, I guess you could call them, which is transition costs and transaction costs. Is it, is it at some level uh, easy for me to transition to the new system, whether that be through, is it, uh, you know, um, through, uh, you know, a, a low, not, not so steep learning curve where I can easily adopt it where I can immediately see the benefits of doing so, um, where my opportunity costs are not so high. So I know I'm giving up something over here in order to adopt this. Is the, is the, is the perceived benefit of the switch greater than the cost of leaving the old system? All of these uh, transition and transaction cost questions are really, really fundamental to, to the way we do systems thinking. And that's, that's the abstract part of this. But to your, to your more concrete question about 2008, you mentioned that year, and I think everybody is very clear, particularly those folks who are in the financial sector and in the business sector with, you know, everything that happened with the housing market, you know, the economic collapse, the financial uh, sector at the precipice, you know, and there's a lot of debate about whether or not the financial sector should have been uh, bailed out. And, you know, you had this phenomenon of, uh, you know, of privatized profits and socialized um, losses. And, you know, some of the poorest people and middle class in America bore the costs of that in order to prop up a system that seemed to be broken. Now, we can, we can get into some ideological conversation about whether or not it was the right thing to do to prop up the financial system as it was, whether it actually worked, whether it would have been better for it to uh, – collapse entirely, but I don't think that's what you want to do, because what you asked is what specifically precipitated uh, some of the things that we're looking at now, and the answer lies in some some fellow whose synonymous name is Satoshi Nakamoto, and this could be a person or a group, small group of people, but essentially these were folks, it looks like these are some Satoshi Nakamoto is a person or people who were a member of the cypherpunk community, okay? The cypherpunks, if you're not aware of these, were a group of people who uh, were a bunch of tech geeks who were into cryptography and really had a sort of a radical sense of, of first and foremost, free speech. You know, we want to be able to communicate with each other, and we want to be able to do things uh, together uh, around the world without the intercession of, uh, or regulation of third parties. And that, that sort of radical cypherpunk philosophy, I think, had a very definite set of uh, uh, a cultural and ideolo ideological uh, bent for Satoshi Nakamoto. So here's an example of maybe culture affecting the rules. Because what Satoshi set about to do in the Bitcoin white paper was to create a situation whereby there was no third party, there was no central bank, there's no financial intermediary whatsoever, except for the entire community itself organized as a network, a network of uh, both contributors and miners. And, and by now, most folks probably are aware of the way, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain works and how mining works. And as imperfect as it is, it was a quantum leap past the way 
we think about our financial institutions. Um, so, and it, and it very much still is. It's still an evolving ecosystem with a lot of different participants and people who benefit from the creation of that ecosystem. And it's organized in such a way uh, that you might call it decentralized or also self-organized. That feature where the, the need for a mediating structure like a central bank or a central financial institution, uh, it was at least a proof of concept that said, you don't need this anymore. You can, you can create something that works. You can reduce transaction costs for people, at least to some degree. And we no longer need an intermediary to ensure that the, that the set of relationships in, in the system um, is legitimate. We don't need we need we need neither the government nor the uh, central banks to uh, to ensure that um, I guess you could call it uh, the, the the system's security and, and fidelity and so on. Now that's not to say that there haven't been problems with with Bitcoin and, and these decentralized decentralized systems. But as a proof of concept goes, it really showed the way, and very often. The way people learn about systems is not through abstractions. They learn through use. They learn through adoption. And I think that is really the most promise. And this is, this is by the way, a bad news for someone like me who loves to think and write about abstractions and mm-hmm. loves to teach people about things. It's, you know, um, teaching philosophy in higher ed or writing articles or writing books is what I love to do. But I think most of this is not is, – is, it's going to be catalyzed through people like me, perhaps, who want to talk and write about this stuff. But ultimately, mass adoption is going to happen through uh, through other means. There are some fascinating examples that you know, as in in, in your book, you you talk about the the importance of decentralization as you know, really as a as a as a new. Uh, you know, social, organizational, I mean, of course, economic paradigm. Uh, and I, I thought it was really fascinating when, when you were talking about uh, this, the, the concept of emergence, this idea that um, you can have an invisible city uh, like Black Rock City at, uh, at Burning Man. And I guess this is we're, 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 we're talking the week after Burning Man uh, just concluded. But um, this, this now this you have this characteristic of uh, spontaneous self-organization that seems to be, uh, you know, gaining, again, gaining ground. Could you talk about the significance of that and, and really the, um, you know, the, 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 this, the human element in decentralization and, and how, uh, you know, how, you know, we are evolving and, and embracing in, uh, in new ways this, this, this new paradigm? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the best I've heard it perhaps described is uh, uh, by um, Andreas Antonopoulos, who is a is a cryptocurrency evangelist, and he describes it as dumb networks. Uh. The internet is a dumb network. Um, so we went from an era. Remember back when they had to break up the the bells into baby bells and ma bell was was no longer um we've since had a, a wave of consolidation for various reasons but but back then back in I, I think it was the 80s the there was a time in which you know people in um 
they, they were it was an amazingly Byzantine system of people in the background or systems in the background, particularly back in the, the you know the old days, the '40s, where you had you know people staffed to plug in different plugs to to connect people in a network, and that was all highly centralized. You would go to a place, and uh, you know when you dialed the operator, they would connect you with someone else, and that was something that happened. Not peer to peer or person to person, but through that that great big Byzantine intermediary. When you can create certain kinds of protocols that allow for lateralized and peer to peer relationships, that's a game changer. And it tends to be the case that the the relative complication of the rules that govern such systems uh, is is smaller. So to get complexity, you want simpler rules. And paradoxically, when you get complicated systems, you don't get much complexity. There, it's very hard for for uh, complicated systems to scale. There is a, a, a limit, an information processing limit to these hierarchies. As such, tend to be those kind of systems. They're hard. They're centralized. And they reach a certain level of complication, and they can't make the complexity transition. But when you design protocols that are like dumb networks and create opportunities for people to connect and lateralize their relationships peer-to-peer, the game completely changes and self-organization has been able to, to, uh, to happen. And that's what we're seeing now with some of these decentralized technologies. And with so much experimentation, it's, it's starting to look like the, the, the basics of a coral reef almost. You know, you're starting to see this this whole array of, of different, I guess you'd call them species, of different system types that people can join or exit. or And and that's because of the development of dumb network protocols and the ability to enter and exit systems um, as, as is um, beneficial to the agents who are opting into those systems. This... This really, this process is going to push us to the social singularity, um, whether people like it or not. There is a, um, I like to say there is a, and, and this is, uh, of course, partisans don't, don't like this because no partisan wants to hear that there's something valuable in, in what every other partisan has to say. But in, in terms of, uh, you know, and conservatives are, are right in that we have to be very careful about change because there are some systems that have benefits that if we change too quickly, we might be losing benefits of an old system that we're not aware of. And that is most certainly true. Um, the, the progressive, likewise, is going to have a modicum of truth in that, you know, we ought to, uh, we ought to be concerned for the least advantaged in society. Uh, the libertarian is going to have, there's going to be a truth in that Markets tend to be much, much better at solving certain kinds of social problems than, you know, centralized authorities and, and state largesse dropped from on high. You know, if you take the wisdom of different partisan tribes and weave them together and, and, and synthesize them, um, you can – you don't have to have arguments about politics anymore. You don't have to have – just like uh, businesses when they – just like businesses and startups are out there trying just you know, 
all sorts of iterations on ideas to see which one is going to to work best in the evolutionary fitness, fitness landscape of the market. If we transpose our ideal, ideological priors to that marketplace, that mar- you might call it a marketplace of governance, mm-hmm. we're going to see a, just an array of systems that uh, we haven't been able to imagine before, and the best systems are going to win. And the weaker ones, the ones that are not as successful, the ones that depend on, you know, uh, you know, facts and threats are going to eventually lose ground to those uh, that are able to have their own gravity by pulling people in to their orbits. And yet, paradoxically, the ones that are successful may be much more communitarian than, than we can anticipate. So it's not not a political or partisan position at all to make that claim. It's a reconciliation of different partisan positions. And that's that's going to be different. And it's going to change our culture, I truly believe. It is really fascinating, too, what, you, what you've just described, essentially this uh, marketplace for uh, really the best ideas to win an implementation. And uh, the capabilities of blockchain, of course, is as that uh, we'll say the you know the fundamental engine of, of uh, implementation for decentralization. Or uh, I mean, there's 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 a lot of really you know key innovations, and I'd love to get your just your uh, you know quick takes or you know, your, your reflection on some of the some of the more important uh, innovations that have that have uh, evolved from the decentralization principles into blockchain one one of one of the uh uh one of the features or capabilities of smart contracts there's uh there's there's tokenization there's uh d- potentially distributed auto- autonomous organizations uh you know what what do you see as uh, you know kind of most impactful uh in your view or, or what strikes you as as, as most important about these innovations you know, and, and I say this with the utmost humility. I mean, this this space is developing so quickly; it's, it's difficult to keep up with it. Um, there's just so much going on, and uh, you know, these armies of developers who are involved in these communities of practice, and they're sharing information and they're creating new things daily. But some of the ones that stick out to me, um, I guess, if uh, we could put it like this, if if uh, Enough of your listeners buy the book uh, that I could have a little bit of surplus to invest in something. I might uh, go after, for example, the HOTS token, H-O-T, um, and that is Holochain. Holochain is an interesting technology to my mind. It is not a distributed ledger, blockchain-style technology. In fact, it, is, it comes out of a, a, a larger technological or, or model of, of computing called Scepter, which is short for Receptor. And they, they, they base the construction of Holochain on a biological metaphor. And when you think of it in biological terms, this, the, the self-organizing aspects really get interesting. And I think uh, Scepter and, and, and Holochain from, from Scepter give us this really – uh, nice way of talking about how we can um, <clears throat> how we can self-organize 
and exchange value without being um, uh, what they would call so extractive. There's a, and this is sort of a, this is sort of a sentiment that there's too much power and money accretion, whether that be in politics or in the corporate world. Um, and 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 look, I'm not. Um, to me, this is not an, a, a question of ideolo- ideological uh, one's ideological position. It is rather a way of saying, look, if we can uh, organize ourselves in such a way that uh, the benefits to individual members are more broadly dispersed. I'm not calling for, you know, the redistribution of wealth by the the coercive government apparatus. That's certainly not what I'm calling for. But what these technologies allow is for bringing more participants into the system and having more uh, opportunities for them to be able to exchange value and grow. You're going to get scaling all distributions in any system, so you're always going to have some big fish and some little fish. That's what nature looks like. If you don't think that's the case, you're kidding yourself. Um, you know that's why egalitarianism, uh, as a political system, just doesn't work because nature is not egalitarian at all. But we we are seeing opportunities. For example, in some of these systems, I think the person behind some of the guys behind uh, Hollow Chain, like Arthur Brock and uh, Eric Harris Braun, were motivated also by the 2008 phenomenon. They saw a bunch of highly wealthy people. They saw a bunch of very, very powerful government officials, and they all colluded to to basically rescue a system that was broken uh, until the next time it would have to be addressed. And they kicked the can down the road in large measure, uh, using taxpayer dollars to bail out these extremely wealthy financial institutions. And this pissed a lot of people off on the left and on the right. Well. These guys, the chain developers, were trying to develop systems that would be parallel with the existing financial order and would be able to um, reduce transaction costs and reduce transition costs, as we described earlier. So that's one that I'd put my money on just because I think it's really interesting, robust technology. It's different for, enough from blockchain. But then you had Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the developer of the original blockchain, you had the same kind of sentiments in the Genesis block of, of Bitcoin. You have an article about the second bailout. Uh, I believe it was in London, where in the UK the central bank bailed out one of the financial institutions in London, and this is after a series of bailouts had already occurred. I think this was in 2009 that the Genesis block was created for Bitcoin, and they're basically sending a message: that we don't want this anymore. This this is too much power, too much money and uh, an unholy alliance between power and money that we've got to do something about. So in that sense, it was ideologically driven on both of these technologies. Um, But back to the question, what would I put my money on? Personally, I think HOT is a very interesting uh, token, and the technology behind it, Holochain, is interesting. And um, I'm very excited uh, about uh, projects like, um, like Aragon, allows and Dow stack, both of which allow for different kinds of uh, distributed social or, and organization and what you might call platform cooperatives. Um, and platform cooperatives are systems that are able to to do business and transact and and, and have uh, 
have an organization that's highly robust and anti-fragile, but they don't need so much hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you can program the protocols such that uh, you, you, you get get a much more it's not just decentralized, but it's also functions much more like an organism than a machine. So we're we're designing our organizations any any kind of technology that allows us to to run our organizations more like organisms instead of machines. Where we transition from machine thinking to biological metaphors for 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 organization, I think that's a good direction. Now, of course, there's all kinds of tokens out there for you know the next exchange and all those. I'm sure going to be great and. People who are on Wall Street and are into that stuff are going to be much, much better at identifying those tokens, which ones are the best. But for my money, I like the ones that are going to change quite literally the lattice work of incentives for society. No, and I think you, I think you really hit on the, uh, the you know, the fundamental uh, precept here that it, it is this idea of redesigning incentives or as a. Uh, really is a seed for, I think, what you refer to as uh, human fractals that, you know, that allow, you know, organizations to develop uh, organically. Now, this is a, it is a, this is a pretty new idea. I mean, we haven't had the uh, the capabilities or the, the technology or, frankly, the connectivity to enable this, you know, mass self-organization uh, before, but it's, you know, I, I think it's incredibly exciting. Um, just, uh, just a, like to just flip the uh, flip the focus to at least what you see is you know some of the you know some of the challenges uh, you know the, to mainstream adoption of, 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 of these decentralized technologies and you know whether there's some uh, some misperceptions that you encounter on a you know on a, on a regular basis that you it's a shink uh, you know, we're just going to need to get past, or the, the I guess the early to get past the early adopters. Uh, you know what? What do you feel are the are big challenges? To me, that's it's easy to state and hard to fix, and that's that's three things: simplicity, security, and transaction fees. Mm -hmm. If you can make it cheap to adopt uh, in terms of transaction fees, so once you're using it. Every time you use it, it's cheap to do so. That's great. Uh, security. If I if I don't have to manage all sorts of wallets and figure out all kinds of, you know, private keys and writing them down somewhere and stuffing them somewhere else, and there's some mechanism by which I can, uh, you know, access the. If I die, someone else can access the private key. You know, there's just all these other considerations for security that in order to have security add, add layers of complication that I think are, are, are not not doing us as much justice in terms of adoption. And so that then leads to simplicity, just make it easy for people to use. You know, one of the reasons that Coinbase is so, so absolutely successful is uh, that they just, when you get on there, it's just like breathing, you know? But Coinbase is a centralized exchange. It's not, you know, in order to, to, to use Coinbase, you have to accept the trade-off of centralization to some degree. So, you know, it's not to say that there aren't benefits to centralization and not everything needs to be on the blockchain and not everything needs to be um, 
fully decentralized and there are going to be all kinds of hybrids and interesting and interesting things going on but why coinbase is doing so very well is that they've made it just so easy to use for people um how many times have you heard say how do i get in bitcoin and you've heard someone answer get on coinbase (laughs) it's uh it's terrible uh, in in a certain sense, but they they have figured something out with the simplicity part. If we can get all three of those dimensions going at once, simplicity, security, and low transaction fees, that's a complete game changer for for mass adoption. Yeah, no doubt. So, uh, you know, one final question, which is which is, I mean, you've you've really you've eloquently covered some of some. Uh, extraordinarily you know, complex topics in, in you know in our conversation here, um, but I think you, your your last point really boils down. Uh, I think that you know the, the fundamental precept of you know when when we'll see a uh, a real inflection in adoption, and that that is simplicity. Uh, it, it's the implications are incredibly complex and powerful, but uh, but assuming that that does come you know sooner than later, you know what are what are some of the things that you're most op- some the implications that you're most optimistic about from uh you know from your book uh which you which you've written about and 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 ultimately uh do when we when we start to see the really mainstream embrace of, of decentralized technologies and organizations for that matter yeah i i think there's i think that the, the way i put it is this um um to answer your question this this is a pretty well-played and, and beat-up and hackneyed example, but I'm going to use it anyway because I think it, it gets us to where we want to go in, 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 this, in this broader question of how we move towards the social singularity uh, and, or to that inflection point where, we, where um, society is, much, is more lateralized than it is hierarchical, more networked than it is hierarchical, which is loosely how I define the social singularity, that point. When we've when we've gone over uh, the tipping point, I guess you could say. Um, the example is as follows: Uber is, from a technical standpoint, technology-wise, highly centralized. But what they created with that with that technology is a is a peer-to-peer marketplace where uh, you know buyers and sellers of services of services could meet. That so you could awaken capital in your automobile that was. Uh, heretofore dormant, you could use that capital to make some extra money, and people who needed a ride could find a ride. So drivers and riders had a matchmaking service. And this operated within a, a, a legal gray area. Um, and everybody's familiar with the story of how people migrated from taxis to Ubers. And of course, the, the, the taxi cab monopolies you know, threw up a fit, and, and understandably so, because they had to invest in these very, you know, restricted, artificially restricted um, taxi medallions whose supply was was uh, artificially scarce due to, you know, government policies and so on. And they um, they were understandably upset if you, if they owned one of these medallions, because all of a sudden there's this there's this company operating in this legal gray area, and it's taken over the world rapidly, very very rapidly. But the constituencies that were built up around Uber so quickly made Uber much more a force to be reckoned with than we had ever seen before. So 
Uber and Bitcoin, both of these are examples of what we might say are um, the first examples of our ability quickly and easily to flip. And this is going to sound a little nerdy, but I'll, 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 I'll just try to describe it in sim- the simplest terms I know how. There's this great old philosopher, uh, great old economist uh, who's no longer with us named Mansur Olson. And he described this sort of decline of a lot of civilizations uh, over time in terms of what you might call concentrated benefits, benefits dispersed costs. Okay, so we're not aware that we pay a fraction of a penny to subsidize mohair industry. Mm. But ever since world, the, the world wars, maybe even World War One, we've been subsidizing mohair, which is a form of wool, in order to make jackets for the military. So that we could get through the winter, uh, through through harsh winters in, in in Europe in World War II, say our boys needed the mohair, so we subsidized it and made it cheap. Um, I, at least I think that's the story. But anyway, we subsidized mohair, and we've never been able to get rid of the subsidy because the mohair industry is a, you know, <laughs> it's one of the the concentrated beneficiaries. And in terms of the cost of actually overturning mohair subsidies. Nobody even knows what mohair is, much less that we subsidize it. So we have this ignorance problem for all the things that get funded in these uh, these fat bloated, um, you know, subsidized industries. But we also uh, we also have very little impetus or incentive to to worry about something like a mohair subsidy because it's so tiny. Whereas the beneficiaries, namely the producers of mohair, have millions of dollars at stake. So of course they win every time in the citizen blues. This is this is just a fact of life for how it works when corporations and governments collude. Concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. Well, suddenly with net, networking technologies and they're becoming more sophisticated, more robust, and more cryptographically protected, which means that many of them are now permissionless, suddenly we can change the game. It's no longer concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. It's concentrated benefits, and the costs to enforce the old order are con- concentrated now. And that is an inversion. It's a flip. It's a kind of a flip of a switch. So people always say, well, Max, you know, all this decentralization stuff sounds great and everything, but how is it going to work? And I say, if you can create something... And within a year, you have 20 million users. That is a heck of an unstoppable force. Uber's still around. Bitcoin's still around. And it's growing and it's growing. And more and more of these kind of structures are forming on this earth. And before too long, it's going to be uh, – and, and yes, there's probably some sort of arms race going on behind the scenes between you know, the regulators, the Russians, and – uh, you know, everybody, you know, I, I say the Russians jokingly, but um, but there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of how to to maintain the current social order against these the onslaught of these new networking technologies. And it's going to be interesting to see which prevails. It could be the central power prevails, but it's going to take us into a dark age in a very, very hierarchical situation. <laughs> even totalitarian, in order to stave off the network age, the social singularity. It would take very, very totalitarian means to do so. But I wouldn't put it past 
I mean, if history is our guide, we got to be careful about that. Sure. But you ask me why I'm hopeful and why I'm optimistic. The reason I'm optimistic is people power. I mean, really, really, these technologies are harnessing the energies and the incentives of millions of people, and it's just a beautiful thing to see. It, it really is something brand new and and incredibly exciting, and I I do I do share your sentiments uh, as well. Um, one one final question. This is but Max has been fascinating. I can't believe the the time has just flown by, and it feels like we're barely scratching the surface of uh, you know this of this topic. But I but I always like to ask my guests uh, just for for a, a, a recommendation of a of a resource or or a book that that you find valuable um that that we can we can share with the listeners you know there's just so much out there i love and so i promised me when you queued when you when you sort of intimated that this question might come up at the uh <laughs> at the beginning of the show i said well max take the first thing that comes from the top of your head and that's what i'm going to do perfect i i think um I think, let's see, and I want to get the title of the book right, but Matt Ridley has a book that I don't think did very well because it's not a terribly sexy title. Is it? It's not The uh, Rational um, Optimist? Oh, that's a good one. That is absolutely a good one. But, yeah. Um, I would say it's his uh, more recent one called The Evolution of Everything, I think it's what's called. Yeah, The Evolution of Everything, How Ideas Emerge. All right. I haven't read that one. I'm definitely going to... uh Gonna, gonna gonna get that one. That's a that's that's terrific. Because I, I did read the Rational Optimist, but I, I haven't read the read the new one. So that's uh, thank you for that. That's a, well. And now and now I just need Matt Ridley to go on a podcast and tell everybody to read the Social Singularity, and I'll and I'll be rich. There we go. There we go. Well, it's, hey, it's a, <laughs> it is a terrific book. And uh, anyway, this is just um, you know ra- wrapping up our conversation. Uh, again, this has been uh, you know a conversation with Max Borders, the author of the book, The Social Singularity, and, and also founder at Social Evolution. Uh, this has been uh, Ed McGuire, Insights Partner Momenta, with another episode of our Ed podcast. Max, thank you very much for, for a great conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.